Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and this podcast is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. Before we get started, just a reminder that for more information about this program and to access past episodes, be sure to visit deepinscripture.com. And also, if you'd like to submit questions or offer feedback, we'd love to hear from you. So you can go to uh, the same website and send us an email at questions at deepinscripture.com. Or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter. Thank you for joining us on this uh, podcast. Uh, We call this the Hard Versus Podcast. It might be a strange name for those of you just tuning in for the first time. But what we're we're dealing with is uh, the reality that there are scriptures that are not always easy to explain, particularly given uh, a Christian's particular tradition. And since in our world there are so many different Christian traditions, sometimes one verse might be easy for one person, but hard for another, and vice versa. So what we're trying to do in this program is to examine some verses and look at how they can be hard, if not interpreted uh, within the teacher that God has given to us to interpret Scripture, and that's the church. Uh, Joining me today is uh, my friend and co-worker, Jim Anderson. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Jim, for joining us today. And uh, what we've decided to do in our short time today is to look at three different hard verses. I've chosen one for today. I've asked Jim to choose one from his past. And then we are grateful that we've received many emails. And so we'll, we'll also take one of those emails towards the end of the program. So, Jim, why don't we begin with you? What's your hard verse for today? My hard verse is the story of one of the early Israelite judges who, through his own mouth, got himself caught in a catch-22. All right. This is the story of Jephthah. Uh, And for years, I didn't know how to deal with this. Uh, It's in Judges uh, 11, verses 29 through 31, and I'll just launch into it here. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah and Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Amorites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If thou wilt give the Amorites into my hand, then Whoever comes forth from the doors of my house to meet me when I return victorious from the Amorites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer him up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Amorites and to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he smote them above, uh, smote them from Aor to the neighborhood of Minneth. 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karamim, and with a very great slaughter. So the Amorites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. And uh, she said to him, My father, if you have opened your mouth to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone forth from your mouth. 
So the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the Amorites. And she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my companions. And he said, Go. And he sent her for two months, and she departed with her companions to bewail her virginity upon the mountains. And at the end of two months she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow which he had made. She never had known man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite for four days in the year. Yeah. I was going to say, Jim, that's one of those passages that in all the years I was a minister, in, I never preached on. You never preached on it once? <laughs> that's why you needed the lectionary. I guess. It would have forced I could you. easily avoided that. Well, I'm not sure it, when it shows up in the lectionary, frankly. <laughs> well, Jephthah was caught in a catch-22 uh, because... There are two passages, and probably the vow he shouldn't have made at all. Um, but there is a, a passage in Deuteronomy 23:22 that says, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely requite of you, and you will be held guilty. Vows were very important in Israel. Their covenants were based on vows. They could not, in their minds, break them. But at the same time, in the same book of Deuteronomy, it says in uh, chapter 18, verse 10, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. So should he break his vows to the Lord, or should he fulfill his vow and violate the law of God? And... Um, he chose um, not to violate the vow, which he probably felt was the stronger commandment. Um, what do we make of this? And for years, I didn't know. You know, was this just some dumb guy? Was this a hangover of primitive theology or what? And you give your thoughts first, and, and, I'll, and I'll join you. After. Okay. Well, we do have the mind of the church to help us here. St. Thomas Aquinas, in his writing, says that if a vow entails an evil result, such as the case of Jephthah, then we must not keep it, because the very nature of a vow concerns good, or more specifically, a better good, and not something sinful. St. Jerome in his own cantankerous way of saying things is in vowing he was foolish through lack of discretion and in keeping his vow he was wicked uh, and saint john chrysostom basically says the same thing that he made a rash vow and god would have forgiven him now it's interesting though that god probably did forgive him and he was in his own way trying to be faithful to the Lord because in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 he's listed by name as one of the heroes of the faith so <laughs> <laughs> yes the question arises um, when you find 
this kind of a story and you ask, well, is this a model for us to follow? Or, you know, <laughs> Don't tell about, our daughters that. <laughs> what about our, our kids? And the, so you ask the question, well, why did the Holy Spirit inspire that kind of story to be in Scripture? Mm-hmm. And, and, and there are warnings there that, you know, again, given, given both what it says in the New Testament mm-hmm. and then both what... Um, we see in the teaching of the church uh, address this very issue. And in the New Testament, we see our Lord Jesus, when he deals with vows, he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. (laughs) And he's calling us in the context of the Sermon on on the Mount to seek simplicity, humility, uh, in the sense that if you look at the story, it says that the Spirit of God had come upon him. Mm-hmm. Was he trusting the Spirit? Yeah. By his vow, there's an, a, an expression of his lack of trust that the Spirit, he was, he was mm-hmm. kind of bargaining with the Spirit. And also, too, there was a, in the vow itself was a violation of God's law. Because it doesn't say, I will sacrifice anything, meaning an animal. He said, I will sacrifice anyone. So it's almost like he was thinking of sacrificing a human from the beginning. Well, in the, in the Deuteronomy passages that you mentioned, we have a foundation for the formation of conscience. Right. On the one hand, any vow you make, you've got to keep. Jephthah should have known that. Mm-hmm. Number two... There's, you're vowing to do something you aren't supposed to do. So right. that you shouldn't be, and where this comes to our, our present day in life, you know, many of us, Lord, what are you calling me to do? Uh, what do you want me to do for the future? Uh, should I buy this house? Uh, should I change this job? Should I do that? We see examples in the Old Testament of Gideon offering up fleece and and you know how do we bargain with God? How how do we ask God to show us the way? You know, someone says, you know, the next truck that goes past, <laughs> you know, let the dirt be on the, you know, on the letters of the name of that truck to let me know. You know, people are looking for ways uh, to, on the one hand, get God to guide them, but the next step is what Jephthah does. Not only is he asking for guidance, but he's bargaining with God. Right. And so one of the main reasons of this whole story, whether it was true or not, we're not doubting its veracity historically, but we also know that in Hebrew literature, often things are given to us. And the issue, whether it really happened or not, is not so much the issue of what's the point of the story. Right. We're not questioning whether Jonah really spent time in the stomach of a whale, but the bottom line is you don't focus so much on that. You focus on what was the story about. And this is a story of what happens. Mm Mm-hmm when we make commitments that we shouldn't make in the first place. Right. That's the point of the story. And it's also point as something that points out that even faithful people who are trying to follow the will of God can get very much off course. Which, again, this verse, as a hard verse, demonstrates that Different Christian traditions now have different rules for what's viable. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have pro-life and pro-choice Christian traditions now. So for some Christians, 
the idea of aborting a baby is okay. Mm-hmm. So someone could literally make a vow that, Lord, if you see me through this, I'll abort my child. Yeah. Or if, if Lord, if you straighten out, I'll let my wife abort her baby. Um, now, d- depending on your tradition yeah. today, you might consider that a valid vow. But from a, a pro-life position, I don't mean pro-life with capital P's, I mean a position in which you value life from conception to grave and recognize that, that, that every life is a gift and not a one of us has, a, has even an option, a right of taking another life. Mm-hmm. Then that ain't a viable vow. Yeah. You can't make that vow. If you make that vow, the other criteria is that you will be obligated to do something you mm-hmm. should not do. Yeah. And so that's why our conscience needs to be formed by a teacher we can trust. Right. And you should not make vows that violate obvious commandments of the Lord to begin with. Thou shalt not kill. Right. Right. Jephthah should not have made this vow in the first place. And so why is this hard section in the Bible? So that we find ourselves discussing this very issue. Mm-hmm. So that today, here we are, how many, how many weeks past Jephthah? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we are caught up in making commitments of our money, of our time, of our possessions, of our relationships... We're shaking hands, we're signing our name on the bottom of contracts, and we have to ask ourselves ahead of time, what I'm signing my name to, is it a vow, because that's what they are, you sign a contract, is it a vow that I should get into? If I'm buying this product from a company that does immoral, unethical things, should I buy that product? And so all these issues draw us back to, how do I form my conscience? So that I know when I'm making a vow, signing a contract, buying a product, that I am doing it uh, righteously, to Mm -hmm. use that word, doing it. And that's why we need a teacher that Christ has given us in the church to deal with these kind of issues. Right. Amen. All right. We can talk more on that, of course. And we look forward to some of your thoughts and comments on that. I'm going to pull this over, Jim, to a, a, a verse that struck me as a hard verse. Uh, that, again, for many people, it ain't hard at all. And that's 1 Corinthians. And simply to start with, I'm going to say 1 Corinthians 14, 40. And the reason I chose this verse is because this was actually a verse that back when I was a Presbyterian pastor, we quoted all the time. And to some ways, it was our motto. <laughs> because Paul says in verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. And that just phrase, I remember it written across a, a wall of my church, that all things should be done decently and in order. Now, the reason this is a hard verse is has many layers. Because different Christian traditions have different understanding of number one, what is decent, mm-hmm. and number two, what's in order. 
Now, the context of this verse is significant, and I'm not going to read the whole passage. In fact, to, to get the entire context, it, the entire chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians needs to be well, Definitely. Tw- 12 through 14. Mm-hmm. But it's in the context of the gifts of the Spirit, the, the proper use of the gifts of the Spirit, the proper appreciation of not only your own gift, but other people's mm-hmm. gifts and how they fit into the body of Christ. And then there were some gifts that were more visible, more fantastic uh, than others. Some that would potentially be more disruptive than others. Disruptive in worship. And there's Mm -hmm. the context here is in in the liturgy. And verse 39 comes as a summary of all that comes before when Paul says, So, my brethren, earnestly desire to prophecy— and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently in order. So you have two sides of the conundrum that we see across the spectrum of Christianity today. On the one extreme, you have those that emphasize verse 39 without mentioning verse 40, and that is earnestly desire prophecy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So you have the hyper-Pentecostals, those that believe that unless you speak tongues, you're not saved, who allow anyone to stand up and worship to give whatever prophecy comes to their mind that they believe the Holy Spirit has just dropped into their head, like Jephthah, wondering if he thought <laughs> if we thought it was the Holy Spirit giving him this vow or not. Or the other extreme, which is where we were in our Presbyterian church, we kind of ignored verse 39 and just were very, uh, as we were called, the frozen chosen. Uh, very decently, parliamentary procedure in every mm-hmm. meeting, the worship service, no one was really, if you, you raised your hand in worship, somebody wondered if there's something wrong with you. So there was that struggle between the two, and so the hardness comes from how you balance mm-hmm. those two perspectives. And in, in my background, it's interesting. I was Lutheran, but I was also involved in the charismatic renewal. So on Sundays, my worship was literature, uh, liturgical. Then at the prayer meeting, it would be more Pentecostal. <laughs> so you deal with it by compartmentalizing it. Yes. Well, that some would say is the interpretation of verse 40. In other words, number one, what's decent? Mm-hmm. And how do you understand what is decent in worship? Now, just think about this today. It used to be that people said only what was decent was a suit and a tie, or for women, a hat, and the best uh, clothing you would uh, have in your closet. Today, it's leather jackets and jeans and shorts, and it's whatever. Mm-hmm. So is, who decides what's decent in worship or what is to be said? Uh, what's proper? Who decides? And again, think of all the different traditions. I recently had a guest on the Journey Home program who re- who remembered when he was a, a child that in his church there were the five rules of things uh, you don't yes. do. His entire faith was defined by the five things you don't do. You don't gamble. You don't dance. You don't drink. You don't smoke. And uh, you don't go to movies. Right. That was the – as long as you stayed within those parameters – you were within decency. Uh, I know churches where decent and order means men sit on one side and women sit on the other. Mm-hmm. I know some churches where a woman is even any longer, or still, given the, the literal interpretation of Paul, uh, not allowed to say a word 
in their gathering. Uh, and of course, I've known now some have gone the complete other direction where sometimes the men don't say a word. Yeah. So again, the issue of hardness. So how do you understand this? And again, some might say, well, it's up to my tradition. Well, is that the way the Lord intended his church? That the definition of what is proper, what is the proper order, the proper content, the proper expression of worship, merely up to any two people that gather together? Or did, did God give us a pattern, a guideline for understanding what's decent? What, how are we to worship? How are we to pray? And you say, if it's, it's up to my tradition, well, what's the roots of your denominational tradition? How far back does that tradition go? And where, who devised it? Does it go back to the apostles? And do we remember why? Because sometimes decisions are made by church bodies who are gathered in reaction to something that either has, is happening in culture or something that has happened over time. Uh, you know, an interesting dis- example of that in the Catholic Church is today, the majority of Catholics would probably prefer an organ to back up the music in Mass because mm-hmm. they would presume that that is the most proper instrument to be used in Mass. Uh, some might say a good guitar is fine, but the majority that I know would say drums are not right. proper. On the other hand, if you went back 100 years, Pope Pius, the 12, uh, Pope Pius X forbid the use of the organ in Mass because he saw that as the instrument of the theater. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't appropriate for Mass. And that's where we get the phrase a cappella, without musical instruments, from the chapel. So and the point is, do you know the history behind mm-hmm. why your particular tradition has gotten to the tradition has gotten to the point where it is today in its definition of how one worships? I remember seeing a sign years ago on churches that would have they would have a circle with a line through it. We know what that means in our culture, but it was over a cup of coffee. Mm. And the point was no food or drink in worship. Today, you go to many of these independent churches, and not only is coffee allowed, they have a Starbucks or whatever right in, outside the sanctuary. And they have theater seating that has cup holders in mm-hmm. it, decently in an order. How is that defined? Do we say that it's up to the, the attitude of the moment, up to the culture? Uh, do we change worship depending on what culture considers decent or the order uh, that culture sets for us, or are we? Do we recognize that we need to listen to a teacher through which we receive the scriptures mm-hmm. itself? And so, rather than go into that in terms of how does the Catholic Church, uh, in its understanding of worship, I would encourage anyone to go look at the catechism, mm-hmm. go look at the liturgy, and see the beauty of how the, the what is decent and an order has, on the one hand, been given boundaries, but within those boundaries, there's great freedom. Right. And to me, there's the key. You know, do you speak in tongues? Do you have prophecy? Do you, who speaks in, in the gathering of worship? There are boundaries, and the Catholic Church completely confirms the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. But there's a place and a time, 
and a way that this is to be expressed. And we see this given to us in the teaching of the church. Amen. And and some of those boundaries might be surprising. Uh, the freedom within those boundaries might be surprising to some people. And what in a Catholic mass might be out of bounds, say, in America, in another culture, are, is perfectly acceptable, such as in Africa. Right. Remember once when John Paul II visited a, a church in Guatemala, and the mass, the music in the mass was an umpa band with a tuba. <laughs> and I mean, it really was bizarre to our American ears. But that is within the boundaries of what the church, through its years, has recognized, guided by the Spirit, as what is decent in an order to worship. And the church has specifically said that it is not the prerogative of an individual person, an individual priest, even an individual bishop, to change those boundaries. Mm -hmm. But yet individual bishops and priests and even laity have great freedom within those boundaries. And so it's important for us to know those boundaries. And the purpose of boundaries on what is decent in an order, some might say, hey, I don't, I don't want to be telling me how I'm going to worship. And the old analogy, which actually comes from C.S. Lewis, uh, if I remember right, uh, is that you know, when is a train most free? Mm-hmm. On the tracks or off? When is a fish most free? When he's in the water or out of the water? There are boundaries. And a train is most free when it's on the tracks. Mm-hmm. And it can go anywhere as long as it's on the tracks. That's the freedom we have as Christians to worship decently in an order. And that was the point of Paul's chapters. Amen. Got a few more moments. I'd like to get to an email. And this email came from Larry. And Larry, if you're listening, I condensed it a little bit. It was a fine email, but just so we have time to address your question, you had asked basically this. Concerning the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14 to 30. It struck me today that this parable has something important to say about the issue of faith and works. Here the Bible seems to be telling the reader that if we do not use the gifts or talents that God gives us, we do not simply lose them, but God might judge us harshly. Those receiving the most talents had to do something with them to be pleasing to God, but the man receiving one just saved his so he would not lose it. God seems to say that this is a waste of his gift. In my uneducated view, we must perform works with the gift of faith we have been given, not simply accept that gift of faith and then not share it by our works. Your thoughts. God bless Larry. Thank you for that. Jim, the parable of the talents, if you look back, you were a Methodist. You know, how did you understand the parable of the talents? Uh, From my background, um, works were necessary, but they were seen as a fruit of um, God's work in our life. It was part of our sanctification. All right. See, as a Calvinist, I would have taken the, the, the parable to mean almost the same thing, but I would have made sure that I was clarifying that these works we're doing have nothing to do with our sanctification, our salvation. That's a gift of, mm-hmm. gift of God. But we would have interpreted that passage as a, trying to discern what it is God's called you to do with your life. And whatever it's called you to do, uh, you offer to him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you recognize that it's a gift of God and that you are to live that out. All right. 
also we would have interpreted those talents as um, in the, usually in the context of evangelization. We've been given a gift. Now we've got to give it away. And unless we share our faith with others. So it was not a works per se. It was a proclamation of the gospel. Some people are given more opportunities. Some people are given more gifts for evangelization. Uh, the guy given five, the guy given two, the guy given one. The point is every one of us has gifts to share some more than others. It's not the amount but it's how faithfully we use them. And we wouldn't have interpreted it quite that narrowly. We would have seen talents as being everything from proclaiming the gospel, if that was the gift given to us, to if we were gifted in um, education or even a medical doctor or medical practice, anything like that would have been seen as a talent. And the as a hard verse... The, the problem with it is that parables like this can be used to promote almost anything. Mm -hmm. In other words, men can use this passage as an example of financial investments. <laughs> uh, so in other words, you, you can't give unless you can't get unless you give. Uh, I've heard people use this passage to say, if you want God to bless you, you've got to give. And if you want five talents worth from God, you've got to give five talents. If you only, if you only give two, you're going to get two. Yeah. One problem with that is it turns the giving into almost manipulating God. Yeah. I'm doing this because I want to get, and that's a wrong attitude to have also. Yeah. And, you know, once again, this is why our interpretation needs to be guided by a wider and a more authentic, uh, authoritative understanding of what life is about. What is our calling in life? Uh, the, when, we, when we recognize through the teachings of our Lord Jesus and the, the spiritual heritage of our church, uh, we, we need to recognize that we have a great and important call to detachment. Our goal in life is not the getting of stuff. So it's accumulation of things. It's not looking for a, a reputation or power or prestige. If anything, almost everything our Lord says in the teaching of the church calls us to give everything away, the simplicity. But recognizing that God does have a plan for our lives, um, it doesn't always come to us on stone tablets the way it came to Moses. <laughs> but that we have opportunities to serve him. And often those opportunities are not as uh, visibly apparent, like I've been given a hundred bucks, now how do I invest it? Or I have talents that I can use. These gifts might be that person over there that needs our help. Mm -hmm. You know, and we might be in a situation where we have great opportunity to use what we have for the good of other people, for the good of sharing the gospel, but for the good of helping peace, people see Jesus through our words and actions. And some of us have been given more opportunity for that. And so if I look at Bill over there that's got a lot of gifts and a lot of opportunities to share, and he's doing a great thing for the Lord, and I don't have it, well, it's not about me focusing on Bill. It's on me recognizing that I'm only responsible for what the opportunities mm -hmm. I've been given but I need to utilize those for the good of our Lord. Right. And this 
to our brother, uh, Protestant brothers and sisters is not works righteousness. This is a gift given us by God. It's not coming from us. But at the same time, God is expecting us to use that gift. And um, so it is a good work, as Larry would say. But the grace is coming from God and enabling us to use the gift. There's a maybe one more thing about this parable. The, I'm doing this by memory. But the last verse of this parable says something like, To him who has been given much, even more will be given but to, but to him who has been given less, even what he has will be taken away. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a complicated, hard verse in itself. Mm -hmm. We can spend a whole program on that. But I've interpreted this whole passage many times within, again, the boundaries of the, the rule of faith to understand that like the vow of Jephthah, that what we want, what we desire brings with it responsibility. If we want more, it will bring more responsibility. Mm -hmm. If you want a house, it's going to have responsibilities. If you desire, I just want a small apartment, it's a little less responsible. You know, what you want. If you want to be the richest man in the world, go for it. But can you handle the responsibilities? If you want to be president of the United States, go for it. Can you handle the responsibilities? And if you say, Lord, if you give me that, I'll do it the best of my ability. Well, you're ready to live out that vow. <laughs> you know, the responsibilities come. So it, it's about measuring carefully what we ask for, what we commit ourselves to, and what comes of that. And I'm reminded of the, of the story of St. Francis, who recognized that he can't handle anything that he had, so he gave it all away. And by giving it all away, he was freed up even more. Mm -hmm to use the talents God had given him for the good of the kingdom. And that's why so often in Scripture we see this dichotomy between the things of the world and the things of heaven. And if you desire too much of the things of the world, you will become so encumbered with responsibilities that you're not able to be free to do what you need to do for the good of the kingdom of heaven. And all of that's involved with it. And again, the point of our discussion is you can take one parable and say a lot from it but is what we're saying within the boundaries of the faith that we've been given to live. Yeah. All right, Jim, thanks for joining us You're welcome. today. And thank all of you listening. Thank you. Just a reminder that we want to hear from you. You can email us at questions at deepinscripture.com or leave us a voicemail question or comment by clicking the button at deepinscripture.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network, a network of Christian men and women who, in their walk with Christ, found themselves drawn to embrace the Catholic Church. Wherever you may be on your own Christian journey, we invite you to walk, to learn, to pray with us. Please visit our new, freshly renovated website at www.chnetwork.org. God bless you. Look forward to joining you next week.